trying to maneuver on this stage and keep distance is hilarious. Um, I'm Jordan. Good to see you guys. I mean, actually, though, like one week off was enough for me. I'm done with that. So good to be in person. Um, Really thankful for what Isaac just prayed, that even a good or even a challenging word is a good one made in love from God. I, I felt encouraged by that, and so just wanted to even reiterate that today. Um, so we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and which is this famous, epic sermon from Jesus, the greatest sermon ever preached. And so we're taking time as a church to just slow down and try and unpack everything that he's saying, and he's teaching us about life and all these various topics about what it means to live on this earth. And as soon as you walk out of the door in the morning, or as soon as you look at your phone, you are told a story about what human beings are and what our purpose is as a human being and what the ideal is for us as humans. Okay, and so let me give you a summary of the story that we're all told. Human beings at base level are animals, produced by random chance. Therefore, there's no ultimate plan or goal for our lives. So the purpose of your life, the end-all, be-all of your life is just to be as happy as you possibly can be, which is accomplished by indulging every desire that you have. Pursue your desires, and then you'll be happy, and that's really all there is to consider. Therefore, any restraints on your life, any morality placed on how you live, on your sexuality, on how you feel or how you think is wrong. And and religious teachings on morality are at best human-crafted fairy tales, and at worst, they're repressive. They're keeping you from being what you should be as a human because they're keeping you from being free. And here's what that story is producing in our culture, and we're all feeling it, is deep confusion on morality and truth, and this, this emptiness, this shallowness. Where it, it, guys, it's like when you're a kid, and you just ate as much cotton candy as you possibly could, and it was good for like two seconds, and then you just got this gut ache because there was no substance. That's a little bit of what's happening in this moment. Now, there's some of you that are here or are watching online that you believe that story. You're not a Christian, and you don't claim to be one, and I just want to say thanks for being here. It's really difficult to come to a place where you feel a little bit on the outside, and so thanks for taking that step to check this out. Whatever reason you're here, we want to be as helpful as we can to you, but for most of you, you don't claim to believe that story at all, but you actually do. Because the best evidence for what you really believe is not what you say or even what you think you believe, but how you live. And we tend to live as if that story was true, but Jesus this morning is offering us a different story of what human beings are and what our purpose is. And the Sermon on the Mount is a description of the essential nature of human beings and what human flourishing and its full potential would look like, what an ideal human being would look like. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And so in order to teach us this, he has this formula where he has 
where he keeps saying, you've heard it said, but I say, which is a really baller move because every teacher would reference the law or the teachings and would say, this is what the law says. But Jesus here is saying, you've heard the law quoted like this, but I'm going to tell you the meaning of it, the purpose of it. This is what I say. He's speaking with incredible authority. And what he's doing is he's telling us what the law of God was meant to be this entire time. And so uh, the, the way to summarize the law of God, the best summary that we have in all of Scripture, is from Matthew 22. It's called the Great Command, which says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the whole law can be summarized in those couple sentences of love. And so we're going to take that as a filter for thinking through Jesus' words today. And Jesus is going to give us teachings on different topics of the Christian life. And buckle up because it's about to get real, okay? Here's the topics that he's going to hit. Murder. And if that wasn't enough, adultery. Divorce. Anger. Bitterness. Okay? And that's like all of the topics for today, all right? So it's, it's just going to get real. I'm warning you, all right? But, but what Jesus has to say is really good and really important. And so here's the two main categories we're going to take. Is anger and consequent bitterness in comparison to love. And then lust in comparison to love. All right, so let's take that first one, anger and bitterness as it compares to love. Look at Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, hopefully all of us are feeling fine at this moment. My hope is nobody just felt convicted, okay? Hopefully we're all good. But what he's about to do is equate murder with anger. And we're not going to do so well after that. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He just equated anger with murder and said that God not only sees external behavior, but he sees root internal actions and beliefs uh, and, and that murder is similar to anger or comes from the same root of sin. And, and let's just read that again. You fool, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, that's Jesus, not Jordan. Just want to make that clear. So if you're upset, that's Jesus. Here's what we've got to recognize. Either Jesus is way too intense about anger or we are not intense enough. Because I don't think there's anyone in this room that just heard that paragraph and went, yeah, that's how I think about anger. No, that feels odd to us. And so we've got to make a decision here whether we're going to write off Jesus as only speaking in hyperbole or we're kind of being excessive in his teachings on anger. Or we've got to write off our own instincts that say that anger isn't that big of a deal. Because the reality is, as a church, again, I'm hoping there hasn't been a ton of murder, but I can guarantee you there has been a lot of Sermon on the Mount breaking anger. And that it's happened today. If I'm a betting man, it happened this morning as some of you were coming to church and your roommate was late or somebody cut you off on the road or whatever. It happens all the time. And there's so many examples from my life that I could give. The one that I thought about was uh, actually shortly after I became a Christian, I started up this like basketball ministry where we we're going to play basketball and then talk about Jesus afterwards and try and share the gospel with people. 
And uh, you know what happens in pickup games of basketball. There's a little bit of discrepancy on what a, what a foul is. And so I, in truth, in just utter reality, was fouled. And the person who did the fouling uh, disagreed with that reality. And so I disagreed with his disagreement with reality, and things got a little bit heated, so I left. I literally took my ball and went home, like literally did that. And then I got home, and I was sitting in my driveway and just went. So the whole purpose of that game was for me to tell people about Jesus. And then I just got mad and left. (laughs) So at that point, you've got to do something with this pile of a human being that you are. Because when you're angry, you're completely ridiculous and illogical. And you lose your mind a little bit. And you come back down off of that anger. And you've got to give some explanation for it. And here's what we inevitably do is we make the classic excuse. Well, that person made me angry. He fouled me. It's his fault. But what Jesus is saying is that no person makes you angry other than you. You make you angry because anger is a condition of the heart, not something that happens circumstantially. And God wants to transform your heart into the type of person who does not get angry and represents him to the world. And he gives us some illustrations. Remember, he's preaching a sermon. So he gives the big idea, and then he gives some illustrations and some applications for our lives. He gives two applications, a church one and a court one. So let's take the church one, verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift at the altar. Look at the urgency here. The modern equivalent of this is if you're in church, so you're here right now, and there's someone that you have bitterness or unresolved conflict with, Jesus is saying you should leave and go talk to that person and get it resolved. That's how big of a deal that is, and he's also unpacking what true worship is. True worship is not primarily about your religious rituals, but about your life. And so if there's something off in your life that's more important to go get that resolved and then come back to your religious rituals that are important, but the focal point of worship is your life. And what love does, as opposed to anger, is it never holds on to bitterness and always works towards restoration of relationship. Now here's the common cultural methodology. All of our instincts on bitterness is if that person was in the wrong, then they're on the hook to make it right. But Christianity says, no, I'm on the hook regardless to restore this relationship. In, in almost every conflict, there's some percentage of both people being right or wrong. And so if you're only 10% wrong, you still own it because you're a Christian. You've been redeemed by Jesus. You don't get to play by those rules anymore because Jesus has offered you forgiveness and so you offer it willingly to other people as a representation of his character. But your temptation will be to hold on to that grudge and think that that if you let that person off the hook, then there will be this injustice and you can't really let that person off the hook. But when you're a Christian and you listen to the Holy Spirit, here's what happens is the Holy Spirit starts saying, hey, what sin have you committed that I've held you on the hook for? What sin have I held against you? My son went to the cross for you so that you could be forgiven. Therefore, I expect you to forgive in my image. If Jesus will die for us, then we can die to our pride 
and produce restored relationships. I was reading John 17 this morning where Jesus says that God the Father loves us as much as he loves his son Jesus and that that love should produce a oneness in his church. That we should be unified as the body of Christ to demonstrate God's character to the world. That this should be a countercultural community where things are different in here because we refuse to hold bitterness against one another. So that's bitterness and anger. Next, he's going to talk to us about lust and love as the countercultural thing to do to lust. And in this next section, He's going to speak specifically to men. And so I'm going to do that as well because that's how Jesus contextualize it. So I'm going to do that as well. But it's not because this is an exclusive struggle for men, but because Jesus just in this moment had a specific word to men. But women, would you please continue to listen in because I think you're going to see the value and dignity with which Jesus holds you from his teachings on lust and love. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That should land with all of us. Don't let that be familiar. Let the weight of what Jesus said land. Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's what Jesus is talking about, the second look. So men, you see a beautiful woman and you are desiring her. That is not sin. That's temptation to sin, but you're on the precipice of sin. And what happens next will reveal what you love most in your heart whether you love that sin or whether you love Jesus' path for your life. And that second look is what Jesus is talking about, the adultery of the heart. And here's what that look does, is it reduces the woman who you're looking at to an object to be used and then discarded for your pleasure instead of a person made in the image of God to be known and loved. And and look at how Jesus talks about this. He doesn't say that second look is like adultery, He says that look in your heart is adultery. So in other words, the physical act of adultery, we tend to think of that as the sin. When you commit that physical act, that's the issue. But Jesus is saying, no, the issue goes further back than that. You've already committed it in your heart even before you've committed that action because Jesus sees your mind, your motivations, your feelings, and he wants all of it. And that sin resides there deep in the core of who you are and what you want and what you desire. Part of the current cultural story is that dignity in sexuality is being able to have total freedom, to be able to do whatever you want with your sexuality. We've started to remove morality from sexuality because we think that's the dignifying thing to do for human beings. But what that inevitably does is reduces human beings down to animalistic instincts that they are pursuing instead of image bearers of God who can make distinctions between what's good and right and wrong. Because there's a beautiful picture of sexuality in the Bible about the uniting of two souls together in marriage. This this spiritual mystery that happens that was a gift from God, but we take it out of his hands and we put it into 
our own definition of what's right and wrong, but that's not dignity. That's actually reducing the person that you're lusting after and reducing yourself. You're tearing at the image of God in them and the image of God in you. So Jesus gives us application again, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. All right, if you're new to the Bible, you're like, what? <laughs> Let me just acknowledge that. Okay, that's weird for all of us. That's weird for you in particular if you're new to the Bible. But what I mean by weird is actually that we're off in that Jesus is saying something really beautiful and really significant if we're willing to lean in and hear him instead of rejecting him outright because it tends to rub us the wrong way. What Jesus is saying here is not self-mutilation. He's saying give all of yourself in pursuit of something good, in something worthwhile for your life. Purity. I had a kid come up to me one time after I preached a message at Salt Company, so a college student. I don't remember what the sermon was. It might have even been on this text. And he, he literally ran up to me in the foyer. And he said, Jordan, I threw my phone in the lake. And he was excited like that. And I was like, what? And he said, I threw my phone in the lake. I was like, dude, you got to help me here. What, like, why? Why are you excited? Like, I've got a lot of questions. And he said, I've been struggling with looking at things on my phone that didn't honor Jesus. And I heard the word of God and I got convicted and I didn't want to be like that anymore. So I threw it in the lake and he was really excited. And here's what I was thinking is like, man, there was other options. Like we could have gotten you a dumb phone. Like we could have put some software on that thing. How are you going to call people? I don't really get this, but, but that's not what I did. I just gave him a hug and he, because he was so genuinely excited because here's what he understood is the life that Jesus was laying out for him, the life of purity, was a better life than the one that he was pursuing in his sin. That sin had robbed him of some of the goodness of what Jesus wanted for his life and he was just excited to take a radical step of obedience to do whatever it took to live in the kingdom of God. Could your life, men in particular, could your life be an illustration for this sermon. Here's what I don't mean by that. An illustration of perfection. Here's what I do mean by that. An illustration of radical attempts to live life for Jesus at any cost because it's worth it to know him and to love him. Are there stories like that from your life? And if there aren't, are you willing to start having those stories in your life now? And again, don't miss this. Look back. This is what he says. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body should be thrown into hell. We miss the better part because we're nervous about the hell part. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be. That's a weighty thing from Jesus. But I want you to catch the better. Jesus is not giving this, hey, you should go do this just because you should, even though a better life could be lived out here. He's saying, I've got a better life for you that I want to invite you along with me on. When P.J. Fleck became the coach of the Minnesota Gophers, I guarantee you, that he walked into that locker room and gave a real peppy speech because that's what the dude does. And there was probably a lot of analogies about rowboats that I still don't completely understand. Um, and he gave this speech and he was probably predicting the season that they had last year. 
where he was casting this vision for them of, of we're going to go 11 and 2 and we're going to compete for Big Ten titles. We're going to almost compete for Big Ten titles and we're going to win big time bowl games. And that moment in that locker room, I guarantee you, was not controversial because everyone in that room wanted that goal. And so heads were nodding along. But here's where it probably got controversial is when PJ started to lay out what it would take to get there. The culture that would have to change, the discipline that would have to be put in place, the early morning and late night training sessions, the film study, all of the work. And I guarantee you in that locker room, there were some people that were in for that, that it was worth it to them. And there were some people who weren't in. Here's what's not controversial about the teachings of Jesus to a Christian is this idea that you should pursue purity, that you should treat people in your life with dignity and respect as image bearers of God. We all agree with that, or if you don't, if you don't want that, then you likely aren't a Christian. You don't have the same desires that Jesus had. We, but those of us that know Jesus, we have those desires. That's not the controversial part. The controversial part is what it will take to get there. And that's some of what Jesus is doing here. Is Christianity always fun? No. Is it always worth it? Absolutely. What steps will you take? Okay. Following Jesus is not just about not lusting, but it's about putting on love. So we just talked about lust, but let's talk about what committed love would look like. And to do that, we're going to talk about Jesus' teaching on divorce, which I know is weird, but hopefully you'll, you'll follow me. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus here is interpreting Deuteronomy 24, which is the primary Old Testament teaching on divorce. We don't have time to completely unpack that. If you want to study it a little bit more, you can go read it. But here's the basics of what's happening in Deuteronomy 24 is it was giving essentially civil law on how divorces should be handled and the messiness that comes from divorce and remarriage, how that should be handled in the community. And one of the things that Deuteronomy 24 talks about is this certificate of divorce. And here was the purpose of a certificate of divorce is to prevent the oppression of women. So in that culture, what was just true is if you were not married, it would be really difficult for you as a woman to be able to create your own livelihood. I'm not saying that was right. I'm just saying that was that culture in that moment. And so divorce was absolutely awful in particular. It's awful for everyone involved, but in particular for women in that moment. And what would happen is if someone would want to remarry a woman who had been divorced, if there wasn't a divorce certificate, that man probably would not remarry that woman out of fear that, that her former husband would kind of come and try and say, no, this is my wife, you can't marry her. And so there was these certificates of divorce that were written as a way of preventing that from happening from a woman, from taking that livelihood from her. And so that's some of the context that's happening here. Now, right before Jesus' day, there was this debate between these rabbis about divorce law from Deuteronomy 24. And one of the primary interpretations that people liked the most because it was most convenient for them was that you can divorce your wife for any reason as long as you write a divorce certificate. 
It wasn't understanding the heart of the law. It was just taking the letter of the law and manipulating it to do whatever they wanted. And so it was even taught that if your wife burned your food, that you could get mad and divorce her as long as you wrote her a certificate, which obviously is not God's heart for marriage. But that was the common teaching. And so Jesus walks into that scenario and he gives us this teaching on divorce. Now, it's not a comprehensive teaching on divorce. That's for another time. But let me just acknowledge that likely everyone in this room has been touched by divorce. Whether you've walked through it personally, whether you've had family members that have walked through it, and then it's an incredibly difficult topic. Divorce is awful. And God hates divorce largely because of the detriment that it causes to all of our lives and the people involved. But at the same time, God heals the broken. He redeems people who have been through incredibly difficult things in their life. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. God offers grace and healing. And we can't unpack all of that now, but I want you to know if you've been impacted by this, we want to walk through that with you as a church. So reach out to our staff. You can find contact information on our website. Talk to us after the service. We want to walk through it with you. But here's what Jesus is doing. What he, what he isn't doing is giving a comprehensive teaching on divorce. In all of the scenarios that you can or can't get divorced, here's what he is doing. is He's saying your responsibility is not just to write your wife a slip, a certificate. It's to love her. What Jesus is saying about divorce is also connected to what he just said about lust. So it's not like Jesus got done teaching about adultery and lust and then said, all right, everybody take 15, come back, we'll change subjects. It was in the same line of thinking, and this was the line of thinking for lust. Instead of using women for your sexual gratifications as objects, honor them as image bearers of God. Same line of thought, instead of using your wife as an object for your gratification and dismissing her when she no longer makes you happy, love her as an image bearer of God. And so I, one thing that John Stott said, who is a commentator on this text, but also was a pastor, is he said anytime somebody wanted to talk to him about divorce, he would say, I actually want to talk to you about two other subjects first. I want to talk to you about anger and bitterness and restoration. We just got done talking about that. And I want to talk to you about biblical love. And I think that's a really good approach. And so I want to talk about, quickly, biblical love. The primary text on this, we've got 1 Corinthians 13, but within the context of marriage is Ephesians 5, which says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? relentlessly, at great cost to himself, unconditionally, gave himself for her. That is biblical love. So here's cultural love. When we say the words, I love you in our culture, here's what that means, is I like the way that you make me feel and I will stay with you as long as you make me feel that way. But here's what biblical love is, is I choose to serve you and to prop you up regardless of how you make me feel because Jesus served me. Okay, so let's, let's do some review. Let's take some stock on where we're at. How, how are we all doing? Here's the bar that was just set by Jesus. Don't ever be unnecessarily angry. 
always love your spouse and anyone in your life the way that Jesus loved you. Don't hold any bitterness towards anyone. We just feeling good, just ready to go, dismissed. No, none of us are doing well at this point. And here is the utter mastery of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the incredible thing about what Jesus is doing is he absolutely is saying live like this, but at the same time, he knows that you can't live like this. And he's setting the bar so high to make you realize how much of a deep need that you have. So you're not doing the same thing that the Pharisees did, is turning God's law into these kind of quantifiable rules that you can go out there and follow because you can do that without God. That's just morality. That's not Christianity. Christianity is dependence on God to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And Jesus is exposing that in this ideal that he's putting up about the human being. And so here's what you could do with this sermon is you can live in this self-denial and try to go apply it and just apply your willpower and leave here and go try to live the Sermon on the Mount or you could cycle down in shame or you can let the sermon break you and you can find God willing to heal you in that moment. You can let the sermon cause recognition of your need for someone to fill the gap We talked about this a little bit last week. I want to talk about that idea again of Jesus laying out the ideal human being. There is this large gap between the ideal human being that Jesus is telling you to be and who you actually are, and you cannot fill that gap. And the beauty about Jesus is he was the ideal human being. He never experienced what it was like to look at the Sermon on the Mount and go, I can't do that, or I haven't lived like that, or I regret that, because he fulfilled it perfectly. He lived the ideal and so he can fill the gap. And in him, in his love and by his spirit, he can start to live out the Sermon on the Mount in us. And here's what he's teaching us is not just what the ideal human being would be, but what the ideal world would be. The world that all of us want, are craving and never finding here, that's what Jesus is describing. And one of the best ways you can figure out how good something is, how good a moral ideal is, is if you just ran that scenario out, if everyone actually lived according to the Sermon on the Mount, what type of world would this be? Well, here's what the world would be like, is no one would ever assume the worst of someone else, they would always assume the best. There'd be no broken families or broken homes. We would never use each other, but always serve and bless each other. And we'd be outworking each other to bless each other. And so all of us would be blessed. Never degraded to anything lower than the dignity of an image bearer of God, but always honored and respected. Honoring and respecting yourself and honoring and respecting everyone in your life. Nobody would ever fear to go outside at night because there would be no danger because every person you would meet would only want your good. Everyone would keep their word. Jesus in here talks about oaths and and, and telling the truth. Everyone would always keep their word and follow through on what they promised to do. There'd be no need for a military because wars wouldn't exist because people wouldn't hold bitterness but would resolve their conflicts. Here's what's so amazing. That world exists. It's just not fully here yet. That place is called heaven. And you are going to live there. 
And here's what Jesus is doing by the power of his spirit is he's turning you into the type of person that is capable of living that. That place is real. It's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus wants to prepare you for it. That's your destiny. That's what you were made for. That's the purpose of your life. And it's coming. And the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth even when it doesn't feel like it. On August 28, 1963, Martin Luther King delivered the famous I Have a Dream speech. And he said a lot of things in that speech. But the thing that is most memorable is when he started talking about the dream of what America could be. I want to read to you a couple quotes from it because it's just so good. Here's what he said. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. How good is that line? An oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That's a quote from Isaiah 40 about the coming of the kingdom of God. When the glory of God rains down from heaven and earth starts to become heaven. Martin Luther King's dream for America and for the world was the kingdom of God. And he started calling out for that ideal. Because something about talking about the ideal of what a place should be starts to bring it into reality. And there had to have been pain for most of the people or all the people in that audience because here's what they knew is this place was not that yet. And this place still is not that yet. It's not the dream yet. But by calling out for what it should be, the ideal, it starts to bring reality into that ideal. And that's what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. He's calling out the ideal of humanity and not only calling you to that, but pointing to himself that he lived that ideal life in your place so that now in him you can start to live it. Yes, imperfectly now, but perfectly in the future. In Jesus Christ, the dream becomes real. The kingdom of God is the dream, and it's coming. And there's little pieces of it here and now, and it's coming in full as we wait for Jesus to return. And so now there's a new story on our lives. We're not just animals created by random chance, but we're image bearers of God created to know, love, and worship him and live in his kingdom. But we fell and we know in our souls that there's a discrepancy between who we are and who we should be in the world that we were made for in the world that we're living in. And we've been waiting and longing for something or someone to come. And Jesus came as the king of this kingdom, as the ideal expression of humanity. And he is the hope that we've been waiting for. And so now in him, he's restoring the image of God, the dignity of who we are as human beings, where one day we will live in the fullest expression of who we were created to be in his presence forever. We will live in the fullness of joy forever in him. And the Sermon on the Mount will become a reality in us by his grace. That's the story over your life. And that story is coming true now. Let's pray.
God, I struggle to believe that story, especially when I get frustrated by all the ways that my life does not meet the description of the Sermon on the Mount of what I should be. Thank you, Jesus, for being everything that I'm not. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for not giving up on us as a church. We are a really imperfect example of what the kingdom of God is like. But thank you for not leaving us, Jesus. Thank you for for loving this church more than any of us love it. And thank you for starting to transform us into your image. We believe, God, that you're doing that. We believe that all of your promises are yes and amen, even when when it doesn't feel like that's true. God, we believe, help our unbelief. And let us live differently, Jesus. Not because we've got to earn your kingdom or because we ever could follow the law perfectly, but because we love you and we just want to be like you. And so help us to live like you. To live out your kingdom in this world so that people would be attracted to who you are as king and Jesus, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make this place more like it is in heaven. And we believe, Jesus, that heaven exists. And it doesn't feel like that, but we believe. Help us by your spirit to hold on to that hope, to not give up on what's true and what's real in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you're everything that we're not. We trust you. We love you.